Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. We'll talk about earnings from Brinker International, the operator of Chili's Restaurants. We'll also talk about a new concept location for Bojangles and a recall with one of America's first craft brewers. But first, on Monday, January 23rd, McDonald's posted their fourth quarter earnings, and they ended up surprising analysts as they beat on both profit and revenue. Not all news was good, though. Some of the first headlines that came out said that McDonald's reported record sales. However, domestically, their same-store sales were down, and they had expected same-store sales to potentially even be flat after the rollout of what they call all-day breakfast 2.0. Yeah, it looks here like there's a lot of mixed results for McDonald's. And, you know, taking the outside view for McDonald's, we can see that they really are a bellwether stock, at least for the domestic QSR industry. You see a lot of other restaurants coming up against these negative same-store sales. And as for McDonald's, they did have fourth quarter comparable sales declined 1.3% in the U.S. and they blamed a couple different things here. McDonald's management blamed same store sales on the strong quarter they had last year with the all day breakfast rollout. They had blamed bad same store sales on the previous quarter of last year where they had very strong comparable growth. We talk about the rollout of all day breakfast really bolstering the last few quarters for McDonald's. So they've been up against really strong numbers at least domestically and then the other thing is they said that they really needed to have some refranchising done and that ended up breaking into the bottom line as well. But tying into that, we see that earnings per share for the company came in at $1.44 per share, up from $1.31 per share for the same quarter last year. And analysts were projecting $1.41 a share. So as you had mentioned earlier, Trent, is they beat on profit. And then also talking about the revenue side of things, total revenue for their fourth quarter came in at $6.03 billion. And this is actually above expectations of $5.99. But you dig a little further into McDonald's and see how they're operating here, you can see that global same-store sales actually reached positive 3.8% for the entire fiscal year. This was actually the strongest year of global same-store sales since 2011, but if you take out the domestic same-store sale loss, we can see that international sales for McDonald's came in at 3.4% for the same-store sales. So a lot of good news internationally for McDonald's. You see consolidated revenues for the full fiscal year decreased 3%. However, remained flat if you include the currency fluctuations and the impact of refranchising. Consolidated operating income did increase 8% for the year, however, and diluted earnings per share came in at $5.44 per share. This was an increase of 13% on a year-over-year basis. So overall, operationally, McDonald's is doing really well. And if you listen to the earnings call, you can really see a lot of bright spots for the company. However, again, the worst areas and the areas that need the most improved for McDonald's are the areas within the United States. You see that the most notable thing from the company that they outlined was really streamlining operations for 2017 and again, continuing the refranchising effort as they look to help franchisees operate a better store. 
You've talked about a lot of the numbers that were in this earnings release. I want to focus on kind of the food aspect of things. I think you and I both agreed prior to this earnings release that they weren't going to show positive same-store sales. They were going up against not so much headwinds, but a very strong comparable quarter in the previous year's fourth quarter. Because as you'll recall, in the previous year's fourth quarter, they were still riding the wave of their all-day breakfast 1.0 rollout that began in the United States. It was going to be very difficult for for them, even with the rollout of All Day Breakfast 2.0, to try and maintain that wave of store sales and overcome some of the promotions that they had in that previous year's fourth quarter. All Day Breakfast 2.0, some say, was potentially a little bit of a flop, but again, very tough for them to overcome with that secondary rollout, kind of a watered-down rollout of All Day Breakfast against that first rollout of All Day Breakfast that pretty much took the QSR industry by storm. One of the things that I'm more intrigued about, and this was kind of revealed with Tim Anderson's interview with BurgerBusiness.com, is that McDonald's is eager to try new products, even though they did trim down their menu at the beginning of the fourth quarter, and the fourth quarter results show some of that. They're trying out things like chicken sausage McGriddles, for example, and turkey sausage in bowls in West Coast markets. They're willing to kind of push the envelope with some of these breakfast foods in particular. And I think that's where a lot of restaurants in the QSR industry are going. You see where Jack in the Box has had some success with their brunch fist menu, which again includes things like putting eggs on burgers, including skillet type hash browns with onions and peppers, really kind of thinking outside the box. And then another business that we've talked quite a bit about recently on the Food Focus that's trying to compete a little bit more in the QSR industry is Quick Trip as they expand and test out some of their gas-free locations at convenience stores throughout the country. They also have these breakfast bowl-type items that McDonald's is testing out. Those have gone very well for Quick Trip, and they've been able to bolster, in part, the QT kitchen sales within their stores. So McDonald's is eyeing growth in the right directions. And just because they've slimmed down or trimmed down their menu at the beginning of this last quarter doesn't mean that they're not eyeing potential expansion of the menu or at least introducing new LTOs to keep those sales rolling in. The marketing campaign for All Day Breakfast 2.0 is beginning to roll to a close. You're seeing advertisements be fewer and farther between for those concepts. So now it's up to McDonald's to come up with some of those LTOs or to come up with some of those developments that can bolster same-store sales in the first quarter we're in right now because, again, just as with the fourth quarter they just released results for, this first quarter is going against some very, very strong comps one year ago. It will be tough for them to post positive same-store sales, at least domestically. It is interesting if you dig a little further and look at the company dynamic, Trent, and that their all-day breakfast offerings really have changed in the last few months. This past year, the majority of the United States has had muffin-based sandwiches and 20% had biscuits. However, now, as of September 2016, Trent, when they rolled out that all-day breakfast 2.0 is what they called it, the whole country now has all the different types of breakfast sandwiches. So we're talking nine in total from the biscuits, the muffins, and the McGriddle. So each of those has three in their selection. So they really have broadened their offerings. And if you look a little closer at the numbers, before this rollout happened of All Day Breakfast 2.0, about 
15% of their non-breakfast hours business consisted of all-day breakfast food. So they were really trying to bolster that number, get that number up above 15%. So for those lunch and dinner hours, they really would like to see more breakfast sales. And they were hoping that this additional sandwich selection would do that. But overall, I think this percent really didn't help in this last quarter. You see the all-day breakfast rollout 2.0 did have an impact on this quarter as far as all of the locations now offering those breakfast items, but those same store sales still lacked only coming in 0.1% better than analyst expectations overall. And just real quick, as we move on, we did mention that they had very strong international growth and they spoke specifically about certain markets in Australia, Canada, and Asia. And they said that they are actually in a high growth segment is what they called their China segment, where they brought in comps of 7.9%. So same store sales of 7.9% in the fourth quarter. This really leads you to believe that their areas for growth going forward are going to be more international than they are domestic. And as we focus on the food aspect of McDonald's, as they look to develop new products and those LTOs that they talk about, really their focus is not introducing any more raw goods to the kitchens. We've already heard some complaints from franchisees about how difficult the all-day breakfast has been to implement. And we talk about often on this show about how sometimes the costs are passed on to the franchisees when new technology or new cooking methods are introduced. But here in the future, it at least for the next year or so, they are looking at introducing new offers or new menu items that don't take too much more room in the kitchen and don't require any additional raw materials. So that's where you get, for example, the rumors about possibly eggs on a burger or something like a BLT, which was, again, one of those foods that was named by the VP of U.S. Operations for McDonald's, Tim Anderson, in that interview with Burger Business. They're looking at trying to kind of reroute some of their products and combine them in different ways to come out with new offerings so that they don't burden their franchisees even further than they have already with all-day breakfast concerns. We move from a staple in the quick service restaurant industry to a staple in the full service restaurant industry. And we're talking about the operator Chili's, which has recently announced a round of corporate cuts and regional layoffs as they look to realign their operations amid struggling domestic sales. This layoff is the first in several years. They had a big layoff in 2009 for the company. Brinker International, the parent company, is publicly traded under ticker EAT, and they had a statement basically saying that they need to restructure their organization so that they have the franchisees knowing who to go to and to really have a direct line of leadership. So this company is looking to eliminate over 80 jobs as they look to restructure the business, at least on the chili side of things. Brinker International owns Maggiano's, which is a family-style Italian restaurant as well that was founded in 1991. Chili's, for their part, was founded in 1975, and they have close to 1,600 locations globally, and they operate in nearly every state here in the United States. As we said, Chili's really operates in the full-service restaurant industry in the casual dining segment, and they serve American and Mexican cuisine. With this announcement of these layoffs, Chili's Bar and Grill, they're looking at 50 employees from its corporate staff that are going to be eliminated, 50 positions overall, and then over 30 people from its field director team. And in the restructuring, they said that they're going to be streamlining above restaurant organizations and then to bring Chili's team closer to the restaurants, as I had mentioned earlier. So they're making sure that they have a clarity of roles, which indicates that they had maybe some redundant positions overall in their corporate structure. 
in the past when I've talked to Chili's franchisees, they have indeed felt that there was some redundancy at the corporate level. And even some of the franchisees weren't sure about the official leadership structure of Chili's. So this seems like it's been a long time coming if franchisees were pointing that out in the past couple of years. Overall, their earnings have been somewhat negative. You look at their first quarter revenues, they came in at $758 million, which was a decrease of 0.5% over the prior year. This despite the fact that they built out their restaurant count. This decrease in top-line revenue was driven by traffic declines of 4.1%. And Chili's, as we've mentioned in the past, actually increased their menu prices in a time of food deflation. They increased their menu prices 1.2% over the prior year's first quarter. So dangerous signs for Brinker International as they are one of the older brands in the restaurant industry. And what worries me even more, though, is during their first quarter earnings call back in October, and again, they report earnings this week for the second quarter, management said that some of the headwinds included slowing in the restaurant industry overall. We have talked about this time and again on the podcast that even though a few people spot a restaurant recession or difficulty in the restaurant industry, again, you're focused on some of these older legacy restaurant brands. Brands like Chili's are struggling against suddenly a resurgence in the restaurant industry from new operators, from smaller operators, and from health conscious operators. I think if you ask Panera Bread if there's a slowdown in the restaurant industry, they would probably laugh at you. Instead, Instead, what Chili's has done is they're losing market share to some of these other competitors, to some of these other restaurants. So going forward, Chili's has to do more of what they've tried to do over the last few quarters, which is differentiate themselves on freshness. They've introduced, for example, tableside guacamole at many of their restaurants in the United States to try and earn the respect of their customers, at least on the fresh aspect of things. But we talk about them being an old brand. I think a lot of times they get lumped into the same brand category as a place like Applebee's, for example, where it's an okay second option, but it's not many people's first option to eat. And that's dangerous going forward for them. They've seen what can happen to an FSR that exists in this space that struggles to keep their brand up to date. It's exactly what's happening right now to Ruby Tuesday, where they're slashing the number of locations. They're in a world of hurt financially. Chili's is, to their credit, trying to avoid that, but I think it's dangerous the fact that they're blaming this supposed slowing in the restaurant industry when that slowing, if you look carefully at it, it's really just a slowing in some of the older brands in the restaurant industry, and that, more than anything, should concern management. They have to find a way to spruce up that Chili Pepper logo. You mentioned Ruby Tuesdays, Trent, and this is an operator that has a lot of similarities to the likes of a Ruby Tuesday that has been struggling as of late and has had to close dozens of locations. So you see this last earnings report when they reported the first quarter earnings. Net income fell 30% to $23.2 million or $0.42 per share, whereas last year during the same period, they had earnings per share of around $0.54 and then net income of $33.2 million. So you see that 
an operator like this with that food deflation is not really able to take advantage of those decreased costs and really pass that along to the customer and increase traffic. What you are seeing, Trent, is what you had already mentioned with those increase in menu prices and then that traffic decline. So they need to spend a little bit more money on marketing, perhaps. And then the other thing that really is worrisome for me is they didn't really talk about any new changes to these menus. So this is something that they're going to be having to look forward to in 2017 to really adjust, either it be with some limited time offerings or some seasonal changes. But this is going to be a problem as they look forward to a 2017 that's only going to have more competition. The other bright spot that I would like to mention is that they did have a 5% increase in this last quarter in the Chili's to go, which is very similar to Applebee's pickup at their location. So this is something that they are going to utilize going forward as a lot of restaurants are looking forward to an omni-channel platform to increase overall sales and increase customer flexibility. And I agree that the to-go platform at Chili's is going to be potentially the future for them as they watch sales figures fall at many of their restaurants. But again, we talk about not only competition from other newer restaurants that are popping up, but also the delivery systems like HelloFresh, for example, or Blue Apron that are beginning to compete with Chili's on the level of food and on the level of selection. So Chili's and Applebee's and others like them in this space are really struggling. And Chili's, unlike Applebee's, doesn't have that trump card in their back pocket like Applebee's combo store with IHOP in Michigan that they're testing out. There's a lot of potential there for Applebee's, but Chili's doesn't have that same partnership in the pipeline. What they have alongside at Brinker International is is Maggiano's, as you mentioned, which is an Italian-style eatery. There are only 54 of those in the U.S., so it's a smaller brand. Also, Chili's exists in a lot of small to mid-sized markets, and those are markets that oftentimes we talk about on the Retail Focus and Food Focus podcast as being make-or-break markets, if you will, but there are also markets that tend to be a little bit more fickle when you're talking about the restaurant industry. Your sales might be successful in the first couple of years you enter a market that's sized maybe eight to 15,000, but after that, Again, if you're not keeping your new offerings up and constantly changing things up, you become stale. And give Chili's credit in that they've changed a few things up on their menu, but when you're increasing your menu prices, when we're seeing food deflation everywhere else and we're seeing other restaurants actually decrease their prices to try and keep up, that's not a good sign moving forward for the fairly large operator in the United States. Another positive sign here is that Paradigm Restaurants had announced in November that They are going to be taking over some locations in Idaho, Washington, and Montana. These were actually previously franchise locations, and they are a national franchisor, so they have a lot of experience in this space. And Paradigm Restaurants said they have a lot of plans to upgrade the decor and equipment within these locations and really modernize them. So despite all of the woes and the different dynamics that we've been talking about with Chili's, they do have some reinvigorated investment potentially coming by the way of these three states that they operate in. So going forward, they are going to have to do something to differentiate themselves because right now, Everyone is very aware of the Chili's brand, and in order to get that foot traffic back up into the positive category, they are going to have to make some changes. We now head to the southeastern United States, where Bojangles eyes continued growth. That's something that we've known about for a few quarters. 
But just this last week, they unveiled a new restaurant design in their Greenville, South Carolina location, or at least in a new Greenville, South Carolina location. Bojangles, for those that aren't familiar with them, they serve fried chicken and biscuits predominantly. They offer sides like mashed potatoes and green beans. They operate in the same market segment as Church's Chicken, Popeye's, KFC, and to a little bit more of a limited extent, Zaxby's and Raising Cane's, although the latter two do emphasize chicken fingers and all-white meat chicken and that type of thing. Bojangles had their first IPO back in May of 2015, and they're traded under the symbol B-O-J-A. And part of the reason they are eyeing such growth over the next few years and trying to change their brand image is the fact that, of course, they have a fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. This new location was announced in a press release a couple of weeks ago. It was just opened last week. And, Leighton, there are a number of design elements that they're testing out with this location that may be included in future locations. Absolutely. And going through their website, they did have a really nice press release laid out. So you could see the different innovations that are in this Greenville, South Carolina location. But there are a lot of new features with this new location. And as we look at one of them, the Biscuit Theater is something that they've innovated. And they have now at this one location where really it's a store within a store. There's a large piece of glass that divides the front counter from the back where they are making these biscuits. And the biscuits are made fresh every 20 minutes. So the customers that are at the front counter ordering at this new location can see this happening. But it's kind of a different concept in that you can't really see a whole lot. If you look at the pictures, there's sort of the only the top half that has glass that you can see through. But an interesting feature and one that really denotes the idea that they are making things fresh inside this special Bojangles location. And I look forward to see if they roll this out to further locations. But then also you see that similar concepts have actually had this design in the past. You look at other players in the quick service restaurant industry and you'll recognize this design in several Domino's locations and then also where you can find other fast casual Mexican concepts as well. For instance, Taco Cabana, 170 of those have that type of dynamic. And then Rosa's Cafe, which have 45 locations, they have placed large glass windows in their restaurants as well to showcase their tortilla makers. So I feel as though this is actually an old concept, but it's a very well done concept if you look at these photos from the press release. Also, Krispy Kreme, if you can think back, they've had a similar concept in the past that really allows people to look in and see how donuts are made and the fact that they're making them fresh and on demand. And also, Trent, you had mentioned the ready-to-eat size that they have. They're actually showcased in a display near the checkout. So these pictures were really interesting because you have about eight to 10 sides that are going to be offered at these individual locations, sort of a buffet style, but everything's really clean and everything's really fresh, which again is something that they're going to be trying going forward. This concept store, their sides, which they typically do display on the front end, are no longer in your traditional metal chafing trays like what you might see in a buffet-style restaurant. But instead, they're in these colored crocs that give the front end a little bit more of a home-style feel, a little bit more of a decorative feel. They're different colors ranging from red to gold. There are other design elements throughout as well, including white subway tile behind the counter, which is very popular, wood wall accents, so you've got entire 
floor to ceiling wood wall accents and strips along the store and also red brick or at least look alike red brick within the store so all of these are newer design elements that are more popular today in 2017 than they have been in 20 to 30 years they also made a point of mentioning that their member uniforms or their staff uniforms have been modernized but after looking at pictures of new staff member uniforms and older staff member uniforms really the only difference is that they're replacing polo shirts with t-shirts visors and aprons are still very similar to what bojangles has had in previous years and then their tables and chairs in the store have a bit of a mid-century modern look which is also on the comeback especially in this particular area of the united states when we take a look at bojangles future plans as far as expansion it's not clear exactly how this concept store will feature in future construction and how many features from this concept store will be included in new construction. Randy Icard, their VP of Construction and Development, said in a recent press release that although this new location won't be replicated exactly, which is kind of a shame, it's a rather nice looking new location, aspects of the new building design will be worked into future locations. We're unclear as to what that means. The Biscuit Theater did get a lot of press in their press release, as did the new colored Crocs up front, and I think those are obviously the largest touches, but just the decor in the rest of the restaurant would probably be good for Bojangles to replicate in future stores. They're going to try it out, see what customers think in Greenville first, though. Bojangles, in case you're wondering, now sits right at 700 units. It's a mix almost evenly, of corporate and franchisee-owned stores. They consider themselves fast casual, although in reality, they're more or less a QSR. But they also refer to themselves as a growth company. They see themselves in a growth stage. The majority of their locations currently sit in South and North Carolina. However, they have eyed expansion outwards from the American Southeast. They have quite a few locations in places like Kentucky, Tennessee, and Georgia, as well as just north of their North and South Carolina dominant area in Virginia. But they have a location as far north as Pennsylvania, and they want to continue to expand to contiguous states because they seem a little bit concerned that the market is saturated in North and South Carolina, and they'd like to do it mostly through franchisees. And I think franchising is the correct route for them. I think they do want to reduce their company-owned stores. And they said they want about a 40-60 split between corporate and franchisee-owned stores going forward. I think this is the right route for them if they want to increase that store count, which you had said sits around 700 units right now. But they are really under a lot of scrutiny, as analysts have argued that maybe they should have stayed private because their potential lack of appeal in certain regions of the country. Considering they are a predominant southern company they really appeal to those consumers in the south and they have a very strong brand awareness there but going forward it's going to be hard any sort of western or eastern expansion to create a business as big as ones like kfc or popeye's chicken so i think they're up against a lot of pressure here but if they can grow slowly and organically through these regions in the south or southeastern united states i think they have a very positive future and you see that really indicated in the stock price and Trent, you had mentioned that their IPO was just in May of 2015, but shares are up over the last 52-week period, up about 
35%, currently trading around $20 a share. Shareholders are getting behind this company and really see the growth prospects for them. And it is interesting how much they have grown in the recent past for a company that really is 39 years of age. So here we have a company that just had their IPO in a relatively short time ago, and they're already eyeing between 7 and 8% annualized unit growth. So they are looking to do this, as you mentioned, by franchising and having franchisees come aboard. But with that, with a company that's still relatively small, again, compared to the larger competitors from the likes of KFC, Popeye's Chicken, and Church's Chicken, they still have a large amount of unit expansion if they want to compete at a high level. And it's going to be difficult to really convince new partnerships to really come aboard and take advantage of this growth opportunity because they still have to prove their concept out in a number of different states. All that being said, and despite the undercurrent of doubt remaining about Bojangles and whether or not they can expand too much further, at this month's ICR conference, they seem to have a very good grasp of where their brand plays well. And because they know that they are primarily an American Southeast company, and they have the most name recognition in that area, they are loath to expand too quickly. They don't have any plans to jump across the country, say, and open up stores in Colorado or Oregon or any of that. They want to expand simply into contiguous markets slowly with that managed growth that they talked about, 7 to 8%. And that's positive because so many times you see a restaurant chain aim to expand too quickly or franchise too quickly in areas that are too far flung, which hurts their distribution mechanisms and also hurts because brand recognition isn't yet as strong in those areas. So when you move into areas one to two restaurants at a time and gradually grow your brand recognition, as you said, Leighton, organically, I think there's a lot more positivity to be said about that growth plan. Another thing I'd like to mention regarding Bojangles is they see a lot of benefit from their all-day breakfast, which they are hitting very hard in terms of in-store signage and that type of thing. So overall, a lot to be bullish on for Bojangles, even if there are just a ton of competitors in the fried chicken space now, not only with bone-in fried chicken, but also now the boneless fried chicken and fried chicken fingers that you see from the likes of Zaxby's, who we mentioned earlier, and Raising Cane's and even other operators in that same space. Well, we move on to our last story. This one has to do with a recall by legacy craft brewer Sierra Nevada as they issue a massive recall due to a possible packaging flaw. And first, we should note that this recall is voluntary. There were no official memos sent out by the FDA or other government agency, but it was reported by the company that this is going to be something done in an abundance of caution. They say that this impacts roughly one in every 10,000 bottles in their packaging process and currently they just narrowed this down to their 12-ounce bottles and they said it may contain a glass packaging flaw, meaning that there could be a chip on the bottle or there could be a piece of glass in the actual beer itself. So this is actually going to be something that affects a brewer that has already been under massive pressure from its competitors here domestically. You talk about a lot of pressure lately on Sierra Nevada as sales have actually fallen for the first time in quite some time. They'd grown every year since the company was founded back in 1980. But just this last year, they saw an expected sales decline of 4.4% because they are a private company. We don't get a direct look at the financials, but that was at least what was delivered to us mid-2016 is an expected sales decline of 4.4%. 
This comes right after they opened this North Carolina plant that was in question back in 2014. And they saw a 25% sales increase largely due to the fact that they were able to distribute to further flung locations because of that new plant. So just a year after that new plant opens, you see not only shrinking sales for the brewery, but now here in 2017, you see this far-reaching recall. Some of the details for this recall for our listeners out there, the beer in question all comes from their Mills River, North Carolina brewery. They have two breweries in the U.S., the other being in Chico, California. And again, they opened the second brewery just a few years ago to try and keep up with coast-to-coast distribution of their products. It's a glass packaging flaw, as Leighton mentioned. The beer in question will have a code beginning with M on the bottle or packaging, standing for Mills River. And again, it's 12-ounce bottles. So if you have the larger bottles, the 22 to 24-ounce bottles that they market their pale ale and their torpedo IPA in, those bottles will not be affected. And their supply chain officer, Mike Bennett, mentioned that the beers impacted will or could include Beer Camp Golden IPA, which is a relatively new rollout, fantastic beer from them. Their traditional pale ale with the green label, the Sidecar Orange Pale Ale, and the Tropical Torpedo. Those are two beers that we discussed on a previous podcast as Sierra Nevada tries to fight brand fatigue a little bit going forward. Their Nooner, Hop Hunter, Atravez, and Torpedo Extra IPA. And this recall doesn't affect any states, Rockies, and westward. So from a Colorado north to Montana, south to New Mexico line, doesn't affect those states. But it does affect the states east of the Rockies who get their beer from the brewery in Mills River. So it's an unfortunate circumstance for Sierra Nevada. And as they try to frame it in their company press release, they said they're doing this for quality purposes. They're saying that this really won't affect too much of the beer, but this really will affect their bottom line. As a matter of fact, they're said to be one of a few billion dollar breweries in the U.S. And they were the third billionaire brewer, at least credited with that back in 2014. So unfortunate times for Sierra Nevada as customers expand their beer tastes beyond some of these original legacy craft brewers like Red Hook, Boston Beer Company and others. I'm glad you did mention that the beer with the code beginning with the letter M on the bottle is the one in question. It appears as though 36 states and the District of Columbia have been affected from these beer sales with the potential hazardous bottles. But then also, if you expand out recently, Sierra Nevada just created a statement saying that people that have purchased these recalled bottles are to immediately dispose of the beer and contact Sierra Nevada for a refund, and they leave contact details on their website. But this is really big for a company. If you take a broader vision of a company, again, they're competing in a very big environment, one that it just takes something very little to affect the industry for the long term. And for them, I think 2007, 17, it's going to be a trying year. Even something as small as one bottle and every 10,000 bottles packaged being affected really does impact you if you're having this kind of recall. But I take my hat off to them because this is something that, again, was not mandatory from a regulatory body. This was something that they chose to do out of an abundance of caution. So honestly, this is the best way to do this, but it's still a bad PR hit for them. And this happens at a time where they were already really slumping in sales for the projected 2017 year. 
We've seen what recalls like this did for Chipotle, obviously, and then Bluebell ice cream. Now, in this circumstance, of course, no FDA letter, no regulatory agency is getting involved in this. But as you mentioned, PR is very bad for the company. Just over the past couple of days, the story has been all across the web after they initially released the press release over the course of the weekend and you know to make matters worse it doesn't seem like they do a good job generating good press for the company this press release detailing the recall was their first press release in over a year they didn't send out a company press release in all of 2016 so they're going to have to kind of get onto that PR bandwagon to counteract some of the negative PR they will get from this. I can't imagine too many people, though, throwing out the beer affected by this. At least for me personally, it would take a lot more than one out of every 10,000 bottles affected by broken glass to get me to throw away what is otherwise fairly good beer. Well, we've reached the final segment on the Food Focus podcast. Every week here, we detail one item that's new to the world of food that Leighton or myself tried over the course of this last week. And as is tradition, we begin with Leighton. So I actually did try a food this week. Last week, I had talked about Chipotle potentially rolling out a dessert by the end of spring of this year. But this food that I tried really doesn't fit into what I normally try, and that is a processed food. I looked at several different types of hot dogs. I was really craving one. It had been actually a couple of years since I had a hot dog, believe it or not. And I ended up picking out the Oscar Mayer brand Selects. And they had an all-turkey dog, which was made of all-natural ingredients. So a lot of minimal processing done here by this brand. But I should mention Oscar Mayer is owned by Kraft, which is a larger company that does produce those staple hot dogs, such as the Oscar Mayer Beef Franks that have become such an American staple here. So if you look at their ingredients, you can see that they are pretty basic ingredients. You're talking about turkey, water, dextrose, and then a little bit of corn syrup and salt. So again, all natural ingredients, and then they use cherry powder as a coloring agent. So that is good news as far as the ingredients are concerned. And then one hot dog brings you about 120 calories, 80 calories from fat, Total fat's about nine grams. And then as far as the sugars, they do have one. So one gram of sugars there for one hot dog. But overall, the taste was really good. I actually equate it to a beef hot dog. It was a very good hot dog. And then the taste of this turkey dog was really exceeding my expectations overall. It was very easy to cook. I just put it on my George Foreman grill and it was done in a matter of minutes. Well, I went to my neighborhood Aldi this week, and we'll be discussing one of Aldi's potential future competitors in Little on the Retail Focus podcast later this week. But Aldi has rolled out a new private label brand of steel-cut oats that are quick cook. They actually did this about a year and a half ago in many markets throughout the U.S. My market only recently got these quick cook steel-cut oats, and the private label brand is Millville, so that is an Aldi-specific brand that you won't find at any other retailers. But what drew me to them in the first place is it is very difficult to find quick cook steel-cut oats. I really enjoy steel-cut oats, but I do not enjoy the preparation time for them in the morning. And these oats promise to be done in about six minutes. 
My one problem with the product, and nutritionally these are very sound, just as sound as the regular steel-cut oats, are the package instructions. They require you to add boiling water to these oats and then cook for an additional three minutes in the microwave, stir, and then cook for another three minutes. Tried that once and ended up having to clean out my microwave, so it didn't work out is what I'm saying. But I did find a way of cooking these steel-cut oats. I added cold water cooked them for two minutes high power in my microwave, stirred, cooked them for another two minutes, and they came out almost perfectly. These steel-cut oats had a texture that are very similar to the traditional style of steel-cut oats. They are a little bit smaller, so you can see why they would be quick cook and easier to cook. Anytime you cut the size of a grain down, you make it easier to cook them or at least quicker to cook them. There's less than 1.5 teaspoons of sugar in the entire thing. It's 100% whole grain. The only ingredient there, in fact, is simply steel-cut oats. They cook up well. They taste good. And if not for the package instructions, I would recommend this with flying colors. But if you've listened to this podcast now, be forewarned. Unless your microwave is super low power, you do not want to use the package instructions on these. You can also, of course, cook them stovetop as well, but that takes a little bit longer. Again, Millville Quick Cook Steel-Cut Oats. I tried it all The price point, by the way, was $2.49 for a fairly large-sized drum of these Quick Cook Oats. That'll do it for us on the Food Focus Podcast. Make sure and tune in for the Retail Focus Podcast later this week. Subscribe to that if you don't already. We'll be back with another one of those in a couple of days as we talk about Little, as we mentioned, and several other retailers in the news this week. For more on the Food Focus podcast, check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus. Make sure and subscribe through any podcast delivery service. Leighton and I will be back with another Food Focus one week from today. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.